Welcome to the Dermatology Podcast, the official podcast of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. I'm Christopher Horskamp. And I'm Adriana Juraszek. And we are your hosts. This week, EADV's Professor Jan Gutermuth will interview dermatologist, allergologist, and specifically urticariologist Professor Marcus Maurer on the subject of urticaria. Physicians need to understand everywhere that this is a very stupid, horrible, terrible disease for patients that we need to treat and we are not to give up until we found something that works for each and one of our patients. But before we get into it, face-to-face courses are back. Specialists, residents and now nurses all have the possibility to attend EADV organized courses. We're looking forward to meeting you in some of the most beautiful cities in Europe. To see what's coming up next, go to eadv.org and check under face-to-face education. If you're not an EADV member, have you thought about becoming one? Benefit from access to on-demand webcasts, online courses, 19 medical journals including EADV's esteemed JADV, over 20 textbooks, reduced fees for congresses and symposia and much, much more. Go to eadv.org under membership for more information. And now let's hand it right over to Professor Gutermuth and Professor Maurer. Markus, it is a real pleasure to have you with us today for the EADV podcast. You're an urticariologist from Berlin, and I think you can also say that you are the urticaria specialist in the in dermatology. So we are glad that you are with us today. Yeah, and thank you very much. That's very kind. I'm very happy to be with you. Markus, you have recently published a paper in the GADV on autologous uh, serum skin test reactions in chronic spontaneous urticaria and that they differ from heterologous serum reactions. So we would like to learn more from you about this paper, but we thought that it would be if we put the topic of urticaria even a bit broader. So um, maybe to start, um, how frequent is urticaria and is the incidence changing? Look, urticaria is very common, Jan. Um, One in four people get urticaria during the course of their life, but it becomes really a big problem when it's the chronic, more than six weeks lasting reoccurrence of wheels. And that is indeed increasing. We're now at 1% prevalence and we see from studies Korea, but also in Europe, that these numbers go up either because like other autoimmune diseases, they increase or of increased awareness or both. And um, there are quite a number of subforms, acute, chronic, chronic spontaneous, cholinergic, and so forth. Um, are we already aware about the differences here in pathophysiology? Great question, Jan. Let's first of all sort this out for those of us who don't every day deal with urticaria. So acute is everything that's up to six weeks, and then chronic comes in 10 forms. Uh, one of them, the big one, is chronic spontaneous urticaria, and the other ones are all inducible. And this is where cholinergic and cold and pressure falls. Um, they are quite different, these sindus, we call them, than chronic spontaneous urticaria, also because we know a lot more about the endotypes and the pathophysiology in chronic spontaneous urticaria. We are only starting to learn how sindus work. What I'm always wondering when I see a patient with acute urticaria, whether he will move on to chronic spontaneous. Since you talk of endotypes, do we already have an idea uh, whether we can identify patients very early on and maybe manage them differently? No, we do not. We wish. Uh, we're looking for markers right now that predict a chronic course. Clinically, it's a severe acute urticaria that tends to last, especially in children. We know that. 
but in terms of the underlying mechanisms, uh, be it IgE against self or autoantibodies that activate mast cells, we do not know if they are there in acute urticaria patients who become chronic urticaria patients and not in the others. Very interesting. So we are looking forward. I'm sure you will study all of these aspects. If you're not busy with it, it will happen, I'm sure, very soon. And um, But the role of... Um, Autoreactivity. I think that the concept is not absolutely new, but I think that to most of us, we are not really familiar with this concept. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on this before we go into the paper. Yeah, and I'd be very happy to do that. Look, we use autoreactivity as a broad term. That means that something in us uh, is starting to fight something else and that causes a clinical reaction. It uh, really falls into autoallergy and autoimmunity, where autoallergy is driven by IgE antibodies to our own proteins, be it uh, thyroid peroxidase or interleukin-24. And uh, autoimmunity is true autoimmunity with IgG antibodies that activate complements that uh, drive these mast cells crazy, make them degranulate. And this is what we learned from using the term autoreactivity that it comes in these two flavors and that patients with one or the other are really quite different, especially in their response to treatment. Do you see associations with other with atopic diseases when, when we have the autoallergic patients? Do they have more atopic diseases? Very good question, Jan. There's a trend towards more um, comorbid atopic diseases, allergies. In these, we call them type 1 Uh, autoimmune patients or autoallergic chronic spontaneous urticaria patients. However, the link of type 2b with comorbid autoimmunity is much stronger. So if you see that patients have thyroiditis or other autoimmune diseases, then that is one of the markers that they have type 2b autoimmune chronic spontaneous urticaria. How far does this mean that if I have a patient with a type to be uh, urticaria, do I need to check for autoimmunity? Do I, do I have to do more than history taking in these patients? Very good. Jan, the recent guidelines just came out and they propose the seven C's of the diagnostic workup of chronic spontaneous urticaria. And one of those C's is comorbidities. So it is very important in all of the chronic spontaneous urticaria patients to look at comorbidities. What are the top three? autoimmune diseases, chronic inducible urticaria, and mental health disorders, including anxiety, depression, panic disorders. So autoimmunity should be checked in all patients with chronic spontaneous urticaria. And when we see it, it points to type 2B. That is interesting and something important, something really important for our daily life. Thank you, Marcus. Um, now, you have uh, published this paper quite recently in 2021, where you look at the uh, serum skin test reaction uh, in CSU and that sometimes the skin test reaction differs um, from heterogous cell reactions and uh, basophil activation tests. Uh, so what was the background of this study and uh, why did you perform it? Yeah, and the one question that um, we really want to answer is how can we detect type 2B with the markers that are accessible to all? And right now, type 2B, autoimmune chronic spontaneous urticaria, is defined by a positive basophil test, the presence of the autoantibodies, and a positive autologous serum skin test. Now, if all of them were to show the same thing, we wouldn't need three tests, but 
For now, we do, because they don't overlap entirely. So you really need to be uh, using all three tests right now. And the reason why they differ is unclear. Why do some patients have a positive autologous serum skin test, but a negative basophil test? To figure that out will probably give us good insights into what actually happens to these skin mast cells when they're activated by an autoimmune mechanism. So, Marcus, you did a very elegant study. You were looking at the uh, skin reactivity. You were checking the various basophil tests. You also you took ex vivo tests um, where you looked at uh, cells derived or skin derived um, from surgery, um, and uh, you you test the cells inside you. Could you? Tell us a little bit what you guys were doing and how and why. Sure, Jan. One of the questions we have when we use basophils is, are they really the same? Do they teach us about the mast cells, which are the main culprit? You know, people get chronic urticary because of mast cell activation in their skin rather than basophil activation. But we use basophil testing to detect type 2 autoimmunity. And the major outcome was that it doesn't make a lot of difference whether you take basophils or mast cells. They will respond or not respond depending on whether autoimmune signals are in the blood of these patients. So that was one important uh, finding because now we can keep using basophils essentially uh, rather than having to switch to mast cells which are much more difficult to to get as you can imagine to harvest them from the skin or to grow them from the blood of patients okay that uh, that makes perfect sense and then you can have standardized tests you can apply the same tests in different regions in the world rather than maybe using some homegrown things that might differ from center to center um, are these tests in many centers available or is this at the moment more uh, uh, confined to university hospitals which have a lot of resources uh, for going so deep? Jan, more and more specialists uh, have access to the basophil testing. This is because it is now commercially available uh, so you can take the blood and send it to a lab and they will give you the result. For sure, the UCARES, the Uticaria Centers of Reference and Excellence and other Uticaria Specialist Centers, they have their own systems set up because they're interested in this from a scientific point of view. The recommendation is to do a basophil test, but it is also clear that not everyone has access and the best clinical marker to substitute for a uh, basophil test is to actually look at IgE and anti-TPO levels in patients where high anti-TPO and low IgE has a pretty good match with a positive basophil test suggesting type 2B autoimmunity. That is exciting and that uh, is it's uh, very interesting because I think these tests are quite well accessible uh, everywhere, almost everywhere where we have laboratories. Um, so, um, Do these insights already translate also to a more targeted therapy of urticaria or are we still do we still have to go with our step up protocols that we know from the guidelines? Yeah, and we're still at one size fits all. The step up algorithm was now reduced to three steps: antihistamine, omalizumab, cyclosporin, including updosing and optimization of treatment. But these new insights have led to the development of novel and more targeted options. Now that we understand that IgE is a major driver in the majority of patients, IgE to self, that is, novel anti-IgEs are under development, better anti-IgEs. And for the type 2B, we're also looking at 
um, novel ways to treat the autoimmunity that underlies the uh, development of these autoantibodies and the activation of mast cells by these autoantibodies. Many clinical trials are ongoing right now that are exploring these novel targeted treatment options. So I'm very certain that within the next couple of years, we will be moving to a more targeted approach in chronic spontaneous urticaria. Well, I'm sure that will become the topic of another podcast. Unfortunately, we uh, we need to wait for these results. Um, there was one question I still wanted to ask. Um, because I have learned that uh, that this podcast is listened to all over the world and um, also in places uh, where um, maybe even Pizumab is not so readily uh, available or reimbursed. Um, what can what can uh, what can dermatologists do if they don't have readily access uh, to anti-IgE treatment, but they have a patient with chronic spontaneous urticaria? What would you recommend them? Yeah, and the most important thing um, when uh, Omalizumab is not available is to really max out on the antihistamines. Uh, that's the best thing we can do. And uh, to give four tablets instead of one tablet sometimes makes all the difference, especially when you combine the pharmacological treatment with good monitoring. For example, the use of the urticaria control test or the urticaria activity score to optimize your treatment. In the end, we still have other treatment options, including cyclosporin. Um, now we have dupilumab, which is off-label, but uh, also shown to work in chronic spontaneous Uticaria. Patients have been reported to respond to secokinumab. So I suggest that where OMA is not available, uh, to go to the guideline or the, the recent publications on alternate treatment options and uh, never give up. I think that is a very important point. Look, we don't like the old um, metotrexate and uh, um, other immunosuppressive treatments so much, but we do understand that in some parts of the world, this is all there is. And it's better to use what there is than not to use uh, any medication at all because there is a high need to treat. Uh, physicians need to understand everywhere that this is a very stupid horrible, terrible disease for patients that we need to treat and we are not to give up until we found something that works for each and one of our patients. Marcus, I think this is the perfect uh, final statement uh, for our listeners. Um, I would like to thank you to me. I have really enjoyed uh, this conversation. I have learned a lot from you and um, I look forward uh, to discussing again in person after this Corona crisis. And I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to our next podcast when we talk with you about the new treatment options. Thank you very much, Jan. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. And back to the studio. Professor Guttermuth, would you mind telling our listeners what is it about this research that is so interesting, so important? Well, we already know or have been assuming since quite some time that autoimmunity plays a role in chronic spontaneous urticaria. And this will have implications for how we treat our patients. And um, Markus Maurer and his group, they have done an very important work uh, to see whether we need several tests or whether we can just study basophils which are readily um, uh, accessible in blood which is much easier than uh, assessing mast cells in the skin and their study has very nicely shown that the blood basophils are the right surrogate to study diagnostically. Professor Guttermuth, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you and thank you for moderating the discussion today. Thank you very much. Bye-bye and bye-bye to our listeners.
We would like to thank Professor Marcus Maurer for sharing his exceptional experience in Eudicaria, and Professor Jan Guttermuth for moderating the discussion. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Of course, all of the research presented today can be found in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. Though you can find some free access and open access articles, EADV members benefit greatly by having access to all articles and content. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts to make sure you get the newest episodes delivered right to you. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to presenting more interviews, research, and other topics of merit. Until the next episode, take care of your skin.